Support for Living on Earth comes from listeners like you. Please make a donation online at LOE.org or call me at 617-629-3638. And thanks. From Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. Democratic lawmakers say they've planted seeds of change, hoping to reap reforms in this year's Farm Bill. Critics charge what they've sown will yield a bitter harvest. It's hard to imagine that a farm bill that would allow 99.9% of our farmers to collect unlimited subsidies could be recalled reform by anyone, especially Speaker Nancy Pelosi. But her supporters say California Congresswoman Pelosi knows cutting subsidies will anger farmers and lose key votes. She is getting a lot of heat back in her district right now, and I think her sticking with us is why we're going to get this farm bill. And we toast the traditions of tea tasting. There are two aspects, I suppose, to really enjoying tea. One is in the mind, one is in the palate. We cozy up with a tea master. Mm, That is actually super. Tea time and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. Support for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation and Stonyfield Farm. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Somerville, Massachusetts, this is Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman, sitting in for Steve Kerwood. The U.S. Congress is debating a bill with huge implications for the environment. No, it's not about climate change or endangered species. It's about farms. Every five years, the Farm Bill comes up for renewal, and it affects everything from wetlands and habitat protection to alternative fuel production and international trade, not to mention the food on our tables. Critics of the current ag policy say farm subsidies negatively affect all of these things and waste taxpayer money to boot. With Democrats in control of Congress, hopes for reform were high. But Living on Earth's Jeff Young tells us those calling for change have a tough road to hoe. I had good news when I was back home. It was all positive on this. There were so many boots and cowboy hats in the House Agriculture Committee hearing room, it looked like a hoedown. Lobbyists for ranchers and farmers crowded in, eager to hear what Agriculture Chairman Colin Peterson would say about the new farm bill and the billions in subsidy payments it might send to farm country. Peterson warned they might not like it. Maybe what we were doing here is just trying to uh, come up with a bill that made everybody equally unhappy. Here's Peterson's dilemma. Congress is under pressure to limit the massive subsidy system that pays about $20 billion a year to farmers, many of whom are already quite wealthy. But about 40 percent of that money goes to the home districts of the members of the Agriculture Committee. So Peterson came up with a compromise. No one making more than a million dollars a year could get payments. This bill represents reform. Uh, We have made changes that nobody thought that we could ever do and uh, knock a bunch of farmers out of the system. Analysis by the Agriculture Department shows the new bill would eliminate only about 3,100 of the one and a half million subsidy recipients. Critics say that's no reform at all. I think the loopholes that exist with the committee bill are so large you can drive a combine through it. And yet it's not addressing the true needs of other priorities. That's Wisconsin Democrat Ron Kind. Kind teamed with Republican budget hawks to offer an alternative to the farm bill. They want to ban payments to farmers making more than a quarter million a year. The money saved would go instead toward programs for nutrition and land conservation. These reformers thought they'd have a good chance. Crop prices are high. The U.S. faces international pressure to comply with agriculture trade agreements. Even the White House wants to cut subsidies to rich farmers. 
a varied coalition of environmental, anti-poverty, and fiscal conservative groups came together to push for change. David Keating is with the free market group Club for Growth. I think today we've seen the strongest left-right coalition ever assembled to work for change. And hitting congressmen from the left and the right, we think we might finally be able to score a knockout punch against the special interests. It's not often you see the Club for Growth teamed up with groups like Bread for the World. But Reverend David Beckman says his anti-hunger group finds common ground with conservatives who think that U.S. crop subsidies hurt farmers in developing countries. Beckman says cheap American grain and cotton flood global markets. Our subsidized cotton goes all over the world and it competes with cotton that's grown in Mali, Ethiopia, Zimbabwe, South Africa. You know, those cotton farmers are making $400 a year. But we, <laughs> they're up against cotton farmers in the U.S. that have all kinds of technology, plus big checks from the federal government. It's just not fair. Environmentalists say subsidized crops strain the land. They wanted more money in the bill to pay farmers to protect soil, wetlands, and wildlife habitat. The conservation program turns away most applicants because it's short of cash. Scott Farber of the group Environmental Defense says Democratic leaders fell short. We're very disappointed that Speaker Pelosi would support a farm bill that provides less conservation spending than the proposal made by the Bush administration. Farber thought he'd have California Democrat Nancy Pelosi on his side. She supported reform five years ago, but now that she's the House Speaker, Pelosi supports the farm bill. It's hard to imagine that a, a farm bill that would allow 99.9% of our farmers to collect unlimited subsidies could be called reform by anyone, especially Speaker Nancy Pelosi. As Speaker, Pelosi needs to keep farm money flowing. She wants to protect some newly elected Democrats who represent rural farming districts. They can't afford to anger farmers by cutting subsidies. For example, Democrat Tim Mahoney barely won half the vote in conservative Central Florida after Republican Mark Foley resigned in disgrace amid a sex scandal. Mahoney's counting on the farm bill to bring big, juicy payments to Florida fruit growers, as much as $10 million a year. We have a a committee that puts farmers and growers and ranchers first. And as a result, the state of Florida was a big winner. And Mahoney's one of eight freshman Democrats on the Agriculture Committee. Keeping their farming districts happy could be key to keeping Nancy Pelosi in the Speaker's chair. Agriculture Committee Chair Peterson knows Pelosi is squeezed on this issue. She is getting a lot of heat uh, back in her district right now. And uh, she's hanging in there, uh, and I think her sticking with us is why we're going to get this farm bill. In short, farm reform ran into one of Washington's sacred cows. The reformers lost, but they'll try again when the Senate takes up its version of the farm bill later this year. For Living on Earth, I'm Jeff Young in Washington. Mark Twain once quipped, we have the best government money can buy. So we can well imagine what Twain would have thought about recent events at the Department of the Interior's Fish and Wildlife Service and a frog made famous in one of Twain's stories, the celebrated jumping frog of Calaveras County. Last spring, Fish and Wildlife designated 450,000 acres as critical habitat for the red-legged frog, but that was nearly 40% less than the service's own scientists had recommended. The inspector general investigated and found that Deputy Assistant Secretary of the Interior, Julie McDonald, had twisted scientific evidence about the frog and other threatened species. 
The IG concluded McDonald violated federal ethics rules. She leaked documents to industry lobbyists that could be used in lawsuits against the government. Julie McDonald resigned in May. And soon after, Lynn Scarlett, Deputy Secretary of the Interior, testified before Congress. Where there is evidence of science manipulation, we will act upon it. I take that challenge and charge very seriously. You will find no greater champion of integrity in science than myself and this secretary. Now, in what may be an unprecedented move, Fish and Wildlife is going to review eight decisions that Julie McDonald had influenced when she was working for the Department of the Interior. Kieran Suckling, policy director for the Center for Biological Diversity, has closely followed the endangered species cases and McDonald's actions. Well, she would get these draft uh, decisions to protect species or their habitat, and then she would personally go and just scratch out line by line uh, numerous paragraphs and replace them with her own conclusions, which were the exact opposite. Uh, She would find any whiff of scientific controversy and exaggerate that to say that the scientists don't know what's going on, therefore the bureaucrats should overrule it. And she would just demand that they not reference important scientific studies at all if those studies would lead to protection of species. Now, she wasn't a scientist, right? No, she was an engineer by training. And and this is one of the things I think infuriated the scientists so much was that in her rewriting of their texts, she just made a mishmash out of it, didn't know what she was talking about, and clearly just didn't care. There was just no respect for the science at all in her work. Well, give me a specific example of how she might have used her influence to affect an animal that uh, was being considered for the Endangered Species Act. Well, the Gunnison sage-grouse is is a good example. This is a a well-studied species. The scientists inside and outside of the agency all agreed it was very imperiled and should be put on the endangered species list. A proposal was sent up to Interior to put it on the list, and and McDonald not only overruled the decision and, and kept it off the list, but at the same time, she just ridiculed the scientists for what they were saying and just demonstrated this incredible hostility to the agency for trying to just simply do its job. Now, the Gunnison sage-grouse isn't one of the eight uh, cases that are going to be reviewed. That's right. And in fact, by our estimate, there's probably a hundred endangered species decisions out there that she completely mangled that are not being reviewed either. Well, what could have uh, Julie McDonald's motive been in keeping the Gunnison sage-grouse off of the endangered species list? Well, her motives were very clear. She was in constant contact with the livestock industry and also the oil and gas industry, which is booming up in this portion of of Colorado. And so she was very clearly working on their behalf to ensure that endangered species did not get in the way of them being able to trash thousands and thousands of acres of high desert habitat. But don't businesses have a a right to legitimately express their interests to the government? Oh, absolutely. They have the right, as any citizen does, to participate in these public processes, submit comments, submit critiques. Uh, And if they don't like the decision, they can even file a lawsuit over it. But where McDonald and industry crossed the line is when they went outside the decision-making process, when they fudged the science and effectively lied and made a decision on political grounds instead of scientific grounds. 
I must admit that I'm looking at the list of decisions that McDonald was involved in, and a lot of these animals I've never heard of before. The white-tailed prairie dog, the Preble's meadow jumping mouse, did I mm-hmm. get that right? Mm-hmm. Yes. There are 12 species of Hawaiian picture wing flies, and the southwestern willow flycatcher. Why would I care about the southwestern willow flycatcher? If you like clean water and rivers that function properly instead of flooding and destroying cities, then you should like the southwestern willow flycatcher. It is a a bellwether for healthy ecosystems, and by protecting it, we're protecting the water supplies that people from California to Texas require to survive, and we are protecting the, the foundation of life itself, and if that goes away, we will certainly follow the flycatcher into extinction. So what happens now? Well, that's a good question. Uh, The administration has said they're going to review these decisions. They, They, of course, were careful not to give a timeline. So I suspect that the first thing will occur is environmentalists are actually going to sue over these decisions to make sure they actually get done. The inspector general has opened up a second investigation into McDonald to determine whether she actually violated criminal conflict of interest laws. And so I think that uh, we're going to see this just grow and grow and get a glimpse of just how deep the corruption is in, in the Bush administration's Department of Interior. Well, Kieran Suckling, thank you very much. Glad to be here. Kieran Suckling is policy director and founder of the Center for Biological Diversity. Coming up, seeing the forest for the trees on climate change. That's just ahead on Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. It's estimated four and a half million trees, equal to about 70,000 football fields of forest, are destroyed each day. Bad news because the world's forests have a tremendous effect on climate change. Trees filter billions of tons of carbon dioxide from the air. Cut down the trees, we lose the filter. Burn the forest down, and billions of tons of the greenhouse gas are released into the atmosphere. This past week, senior government officials from 70 countries met in Australia at the world's first high-level meeting on forestry and climate change. At the meeting, Australia's Environment Minister Malcolm Turnbull announced a five-year, $175 million initiative to use satellites to monitor the world's forests. We reached Minister Turnbull by phone at the Sydney airport. What we're able to do through our global initiative on forest and climate is work with other countries to incorporate uh, sustainable forestry into the battle against climate change. Now, one of the most important things we need to do is to monitor increases and decreases in forest cover and also monitor carbon emissions. Now, we have very advanced techniques to do that in Australia. And so what we want to do is work with other countries to set up a global forest uh, monitoring and carbon monitoring network. What that will mean is before too long, be able to have a very good idea of what's happening with the world's forests, both in terms of net hectareage of coverage and also what's happening in terms of their contribution to the carbon cycle. But everyone knows that there's illegal logging going on in Brazil and Indonesia, that there's clear cutting of the, of the forests and burning down of the forests. But now what? What do you do with this information? Well, ultimately, it's up to national governments to enforce their own laws. 
all countries, I think, are working very hard to fight against illegal logging. But ultimately, you need compliance and enforcement on the ground. Now, the type of satellite and uh, radar data that a network of this kind can deliver, of course, makes enforcement a lot easier. But, you know, critics say that Australia imports $400 million worth of contraband timber every year. Your plan is a five-year plan for $175 million. They say your plan is a drop in the bucket against these illegal imports. Well, you're not, you're not comparing apples with apples. The, the $400 million figure is an absolute guesstimate. And the bulk of the illegal timber imports is timber that is contained in furniture. It's hard, I would say, well-nigh impossible to know whether the timber that is in a chair or a table that's come from China had its origin in illegal or legally uh, cut timber. Now, we need to try to develop ways in which we can get certification right back to the source. Well, right now, there's no incentives for these loggers to not cut the forest down. This is what we're focused on. You see, what you've got is a market failure in that the carbon cost is not being factored into forestries. The classic case is the way the Kyoto Protocol, in effect, encourages deforestation. There is an incentive for countries to use biofuels such as palm oil because they're seen as a renewable energy resource. However, to grow that palm oil, you need land, and also often that land is being provided by uh, rainforests being clear-felled. But having said that, it's a weakness that is widely recognised, and we certainly are very committed to addressing it in the next round of Kyoto, in Kyoto 2, if you like. What's been the United States' reaction to your initiative and to the conference? Oh, they've been very supportive. The U.S. was the first government, it and Indonesia were the two first governments to support our initiative. But the important thing that we've achieved, I think, is that we've succeeded in lifting the profile of this issue in the climate change debate up several notches. And I don't think there'll be any difficulty ensuring that forestry is a key part of the new climate change agenda, the post-Kyoto agenda, that will begin to be framed in earnest at Bali later this year. It seems to me surprising that it's taken government so long to actually address the issue of forests and greenhouse gases. Yes, it's always puzzled me. It is, in many respects, the least cost abatement opportunity. And, of course, there are so many other benefits. There are benefits for biodiversity. There are benefits for water quality. Better management of the world's forests ticks every box. Well, I know you have a plane to catch, so I'll let you go. I want to thank you very much. No, thank you. Speaking to us from a phone in the Sydney airport is Australia's Environment Minister, Malcolm Turnbull. Apparently, our interest in the great outdoors isn't so great anymore. The Centers for Disease Control reports a 30% drop in youth participation in outdoor activities over the past decade. In fact, since 1999, recreational visits to our national parks have been on a steady downward slide. Overnight stays, down 16%. Tent and backcountry camping have fallen nearly 20%. Hardest hit in terms of sheer numbers are parks in the Pacific West region, which is the backyard of one of the world's largest seller of outdoor gear, REI. Recreational Equipment Incorporated is a co-op. It's owned by its members. 
The 70-year-old company recently released its first annual stewardship report that aims to address the downward trend in outdoor activities. Sally Jewell is president and CEO of REI. Hi, Sally. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me, Bruce. The statistics are absolutely incredible. In the last decade, there's a 30% decline in youth participation in outdoor activities. That's true. Yeah, we've seen a real decline, especially in the use of public lands. People are getting out for activities that are closer to home and things that they might do in a day, but the activities like family camping and backpacking trips and uh, long road trips in the car really are scaling back as people choose to do other things with their free time. So what's going on? Kids are just getting to be fat and happy? Kids are busier and parents are busier. And I also think that technologies are becoming so good at engaging the brains of our children and perhaps ourselves that it's much easier to stay put. And your mind is very active, but your body isn't. And what you're seeing is increasing obesity, certainly, but asthma and other diseases are increasingly problematic. And part of that is because children aren't getting exposed to the outdoors like they used to. The implications of this are profound because if we are not raising kids who are used to be going into the outdoors, what happens to the outdoors? Who's going to take care of there? Bingo. I think it is very difficult for us to expect that we're going to have advocates for the future for the wild and scenic places or even the city parks if people haven't been out using them and appreciating what's there. So if we want advocates for the future, we need to be engaging children today. They are the future. And that's also why we need to reach out across the broad spectrum of our population, not just those families who've traditionally played outside or gone camping together. We need to reach out to a broader group of people that make up our population so they will advocate for these important places when they're in the legislature or in the city councils or the mayors in the future. Well, for you, it's even more profound because it's really your business. That's your customer out there. I guess the good news is people aspire to do things in the outdoors. It's still very much part of our consciousness and part of what we need as human beings. We need nature. And so part of our job as a business is to connect people back to nature, to make it easy for them. So you don't want to make it sound like it's an epic journey to get into the outdoors. Part of our job is to make people feel comfortable that they can get outdoors and do things every day in the outdoors that are close to home. We have a program called PEAK, which stands for Promoting Environmental Awareness in Kids. And it's actually a backpack full of curriculum that we developed in conjunction with Leave No Trace, the Environmental Organization for Outdoor Ethics. And we'll take it out to any place kids are gathered and put on a PEAK program, which gives them an introduction to the principles of outdoor ethics and connecting with nature in a, in a low-impact way. You have something called a gear bank. What is that? In some markets across the country, we put a special program of gear in place so that underprivileged groups of kids who don't have access to quality equipment to have a good camping experience can come into REI and get outfitted. So it's packs and tents and sleeping bags and sleeping pads and stoves and, in some cases, clothing. We don't want any child in the communities to not be able to equip themselves to be comfortable on a trip. We don't want them to have a miserable experience outside. We want to have them to have a great experience. You have an interesting background because you came through the corporate structure, not in the, you know, kind of great outdoors. You were a banker for, what, almost 20 years. Mm -hmm. You worked for an oil company, Mobile. That's right. Not what I would think of as your, you know, kind of, you know, granola trail-eating <laughs> kind of gap. <laughs> I started my career in oil and gas as an engineer, and I would say this, that 
we all use hydrocarbons. And being an engineer and working for Mobil Oil, I have a real understanding of the trade-offs that we make when we use oil and gas. There is an impact on our planet, not only in the greenhouse gases we produce, but also in the damage to the environment that's just inevitable when you're going to be extracting things from the planet itself. But it's given me a background and I think a practical way of looking at our responsibility collectively to do the right things for our planet. Reducing our consumption, taking care of our planet, trying to find ways to produce energy that aren't so impactful. Is it more difficult to manage a company of the size of REI? I mean, how do you make a company that's a billion dollars in revenues a year sustainable? It's a great question. We think REI must work toward being planet neutral. And of course, we aren't yet, as very few companies perhaps could make a claim that they were. We think we need to set a tone, not only for our, the outdoor industry, but for other businesses in general. So we now understand our greenhouse gas footprint, CO2 levels by every single store. We reduced that greenhouse gas from electricity by 30% last year by buying new renewable energy from wind and solar primarily. We are working to reduce our commuting consumption, our transportation consumption, as well as recycling more. And we have goals to be planet neutral, at least from a, a carbon dioxide standpoint, by 2020. Sally, you like what you do. I can hear it. You love what you do. I love what I do. Why do you do it, though? You know, there's something about working for a co-op where you can think about how do you support this company, this industry, and nature 25, 50, 100 years from now. We're engaging young people because they're going to be our customers 25 years from now, and they're going to be the decision makers about our environment. Well, Sally Jewell, it's been a real pleasure. I've enjoyed it a lot. It's my pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. Sally Jewell is the CEO of Recreational Equipment Incorporated, better known as REI. And now, a public service announcement to the youth of America. Hey, you kids, shut off the television and the video game, get your butts off the couch, and go outside and play. Another public service announcement from Fatbago, Federated Adults Taking Boys and Girls Outside. Get off your butts and go outside! Of America. A bit of satire by the Living on Earthlings. Most of us are omnivores. We eat plants and animals. Then there are vegetarians who eat mostly veggies, and vegans who are stricter and don't even eat honey or eggs. And then there are locavores, that is, people who try to cook and eat food that is grown less than 100 miles from where they live. Today we continue our coverage of eating locally with another audio postcard about community-supported agriculture. CSAs enable people to buy into a weekly share of a local farm's produce. Living on Earth's Ian Gray has a share in Red Fire Farms CSA. Food writer Kathy Guntz recently accompanied Ian when he went to pick up his share. The challenge to Kathy to whip up a dish from what he got. They were there as Jarrett Mann, assistant manager of Red Fire Farms CSA, unloaded a truck of fresh produce in Cambridge, Mass. families do you guess you might be feeding this summer? Well, we have somewhere in the like 450 member range shares. Wow. That's huge. huge. Yeah. yeah, most of it goes into Boston. I take 330 every week into Boston. I mean, we turn down probably 70 or 80 people from this site. Why would someone in Cambridge care whether their spinach came from your organic farm or they bought it at the co-op or they bought it at a Whole Food? Why bother with this? 
well. Some people are just in it because it's uh, the freshest thing you can get. Some of the stuff we harvested literally this morning, they also are engaging in a community to a certain sense. Their language even is quite telling. They'll say, oh, this is our farm. This is my farm. I mean, it's not their farm, but they feel <laughs> like they're a part of it. And I think that it's part of this connection to the land. Increasingly, you go into this grocery store and everything is wrapped in plastic and who knows where the hell it's from. And when people don't feel connected to their food, there's something lost, whether or not they realize it. And so people hungering for this connection can find it through CSAs. Thank you so much. Okay, wow. Well, right. Now we Here have to we gather all of our grub, and then we're going to go back and cook it. Okay, so we're in the kitchen now and we're going to start pulling stuff out. Do you, have a, do you have an idea what you're going to make? I have so many ideas. You know, this is so different than last time where we had greens and we had vegetables that, not A-list stuff, right? We had kale and turnips last time. This is A-list vegetables. We have gorgeous uh, zucchini and yellow squash. We have the first tomatoes of the season. Parsley that is so crunchy and full of flavor. String beans, scallions, cucumbers. But what really got me were these beautiful little beets. They're just, they're the size of not even a baseball. They're smaller than that. And the size of a mouse. Size of, <laughs> so they look like mice with their long <laughs> yeah, root tails yeah. there. But they're so fresh and beautiful. So I have this really cool dish called Beets Napoleon. So I'm just going to start by rinsing the beets and then wrapping them in foil and popping them in a hot oven. And we're going to roast them till they're tender. And then I'm going to slice them. Um, and then we're going to reassemble them with a thin layer of an herbed goat cheese in between. So these beets already have the tops removed, so I'm just going to rinse them. And you could just put them in a roasting pan, but if you wrap them in some foil, tends to keep the juices in in a really nice way. And they're gonna take about 45 minutes to an hour, really, um, at about 425 degrees. All right, just gonna pop them in, and we're gonna just forget about that. But we'll make the goat cheese filling, and we'll take a look at the rest of the produce. Okay, so I'm just using the back of a spoon to soften the goat cheese and it crumbles right up. And you can see it's a little bit dry when you try to crumble it. So we add just about a tablespoon or two of milk. And I'm gonna add some pepper and salt to the goat cheese. It's just mixed with a little bit of milk. All right, we'll add about a tablespoon of fresh dill chopped, but this could be any herb. You could use basil, you could use thyme, lemon, verbena, whatever you have. That's it. If you wanted to get fancy, you could make a really simple green sauce by putting some scallions and parsley and a little bit of olive oil and maybe a clove of garlic into a food processor and whirl it up, and you'd have a beautiful green sauce to put around your beet napoleons. So we have the goat cheese filling done, and we'll just wait for the beets, and then we'll assemble the napoleons. Let's check the beets. It's been, oh, it's been almost an hour. Oh, look how juicy they are. These are perfect. So the best way to um, deal with the beets once they've cooled is keep them in the tin foil and put them in your sink because beet juice tends to stain. Like I have beautiful maroon fingers right now, but that'll come off. So I'm just trimming off the ends and then I'm using my hands 
they are still quite hot. And you see that? The peel just comes right off. And you want to cut each beet into, what is that, a quarter of an inch? And this part's really fun. This is the kind of thing you could even do with a kid because it's almost like decorating a cake. You get to layer these beautiful beet slices with this pure white herbed goat cheese. And, and you can make these two layers or you can tower them up and do three. I'll look for a, a little guy on top. And uh, that's your beet Napoleon. Very arty and fun and you get to play with your food. Kathy Gunst is author of Stonewall Kitchen Favorites. You can find the recipe for Kathy's beet Napoleons and other dishes she whipped up with Ian at LOE.org. Later this fall, Kathy and Ian pick up another box from the Red Fire Farm CSA, and we'll be there to see what she comes up with. Just ahead, what you see may not be what you get when it comes to underwater algae. Keep listening to Living on Earth. Support for the Environmental Health Desk at Living on Earth comes from the Cedar Tree Foundation. Support also comes from the Richard and Rhoda Goldman Fund for coverage of population and the environment. This is Living on Earth on PRI, Public Radio International. It's Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. Coming up, tea and tradition for two with a British tea master. But first, this note on emerging science from Lauren Cox. Danger is near. The Autobots in this summer's blockbuster Transformers movie don't turn to fight or flight, they change form. And just like the alien robots morph when confronted by a foe, so does a species of algae native to Earth. Scientists at the Georgia Institute of Technology have discovered that a common species of ocean algae can dramatically change its shape and size to escape being eaten. The algae, called phaocystis, can detect what kind of sea creature is nearby from chemical signals in the water. It can then morph from a tiny single cell into a giant complex colony, or vice versa. The transformation is on the same magnitude as a single mosquito morphing into a dense swarm 70 times bigger than a blue whale. By using the transforming trick, algae can increase their chance of survival by a hundredfold, and understanding the algae's ability to transform might help us survive. Algae absorb a significant amount of the carbon dioxide in the ocean, and the size algae takes can determine where the greenhouse gas goes once the algae is eaten. If it's a large colony, it sinks to the ocean floor. If it's a single cell, it stays near the ocean's surface, where there's a greater chance it'll be released back into the atmosphere. Obviously, when it comes to algae in the ocean, there's a lot more than meets the eye. Transformers, more than meets the eye. That's this week's Snow on Emerging Science. I'm Lauren Cox. One of the biggest and most ambitious environmental restoration projects in the country is now underway in San Francisco Bay. It will take decades and upwards of a billion dollars to turn thousands of acres of industrial salt ponds back into wetlands. As Andrea Kissick reports from San Francisco, the work is helping nature make a comeback. If you've ever flown into San Francisco International Airport, then you've seen the salt ponds, a checkerboard of orange, red, and yellow hues formed by algae from high salinity levels. Go a little closer still, and some of the salt ponds look like the surface of the moon. Sinuous water channels flow through a layer of chalky white crust. 
Back in the 1800s, this former tidal marsh was diked off by levees to create ponds for salt making. In fact, in some parts of the bay, they're still making salt for food, medicine, and road de-icing. This is our reclaim area here. This is where the salt um, after it's harvested, it's been, it's been washed, and then it's been stacked. This East Bay salt plant is owned and operated by Cargill, the Minnesota-based multinational food firm. Pat Mapelli stands dwarfed by an 80-foot-high stack of salt that looks like the white top of a circus tent. We crunch our way over a salt-covered road until we reach the edge of the bay. In front of us is a surreal sight what looks like a frozen alpine lake just beginning to melt. These are Cargill's crystallizer beds, the heart of the company's evaporative salt-making operation. You actually start to see almost looks like a, a ice or glassy look on the surface. As those crystals continue to grow, and they do grow, they become heavy, they drop to the bottom of the crystallizer bed. And so what we're looking at is this nice, even, flat surface for us to be able to harvest on. The water in these engineered shallow beds is going through the final stages of evaporation. The process ends here, but it actually begins out in the ponds that ring the bay. If you follow a salt molecule from the time it is pumped in from the bay through the, the concentration process until it actually is precipitated out in a crystallizer, it takes on the, on the average of about four to five years. Cargill sold the majority of its ponds in 2003 to the state and federal government for $100 million. Now, a coalition of groups is overseeing an effort to turn 16,000 acres of former salt ponds, an area the size of Manhattan, back to natural wetlands. It's a gargantuan effort to roll back the clock 150 years. At the southern edge of the bay in the Alviso Slough near San Jose, amphibious dump trucks working on the restoration dig out mud that keeps sliding back into a channel. Yeah, I can't wait for this channel to be excavated. Basically, this has been this system has been our problem child. Eric Mruz is a biologist managing the ponds for the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. He has been dogged by this one channel that is supposed to allow the tide to flush out a salt pond here. All our water quality requirements have just been horrible for this pond, and it's because we can't funnel enough water, fresh water, through the system. Restoration work began here last year when three levees were breached, allowing the tide to flow in and out. Scientists are learning from these early efforts but some benefits are already evident. Steve Ritchie with the California Coastal Conservancy is helping guide the restoration effort. He says that within days of opening the first levees, wildlife returned. Sediment has moved into those much more rapidly than we expected. So what we're seeing out there now are really extensive mudflats that are very rich uh, and great feeding opportunities for a lot of shorebirds. Uh, we're seeing fish come back in through the channels so that uh, uh, fish-eating birds are having a great time out there. So we really seem to see some pretty active restoration going on just now. It's just been a year since we breached them. Standing on a bluff just south of the San Francisco airport, Ritchie points northwest toward Eden Landing, where another levee should be breached this fall. But with such encouraging early results, why wait so long? Ritchie says we can't just turn it all back. We humans have changed the landscape so much that it would be irresponsible to instantly try to put it back the way it was. We would be 
extremely surprised and potentially have some really bad consequences we don't want out there. Like flooding. When the ponds were created, the population in the Bay Area was only a few hundred thousand, far below the seven million it is now. Today, many people live or work right against the edges of the Bay. In 40 years, says Richie, a combination of factors such as rising sea levels from climate change and a bad storm could mean disastrous flooding for Silicon Valley. Actually, what you have right behind the ponds is you have uh, obviously a couple of major freeways, you have the three sewage treatment plants that serve northern Santa Clara County, and you have major Silicon Valley businesses, Google, Yahoo, et cetera, et cetera. There's just many right there. As wildlife begins to return to the shoreline, so it's expected will a curious public. Several miles of trails and other recreation sites are planned. Right now, hikers and mountain bike riders can make use of some of the levee trails, but just how much of the restored wetlands should be open to joggers, bicyclists, and kayakers remains an issue of debate. And then there is another challenge that has Richie and others playing Mother Nature as they determine just which habitat will survive. It turns out some species actually thrive on salt ponds, but others don't. California clapper rail and salt marsh harvest mouse were the species that really utilized that area and they've become endangered because of the reduction in it. When they were converted to salt ponds, a whole lot of other species moved in. So one of the things that we have to do in terms of habitat is strike a balance between those species. We want to recover the tidal marsh area and the tidal marsh species, but we don't want to do it solely at the expense of species that like ponds. If concerns such as flooding or choosing which species will survive isn't daunting enough, how about raising a billion dollars? That's how much restoring the more than 20 miles of shoreline could cost to complete. The task of bringing back the edges of San Francisco Bay may seem formidable, but the fact that it is even possible makes many people want to try. For Living on Earth, I'm Andrea Kissick. a landscape of a place you love. The image is more than the sum of its parts. There's an intimacy, a special relationship we have with the land and the forms that are special to us, even as they change. To know a place, to truly know a place, is a way of making it our own. Writers Barry Lopez and Deborah Guartney asked 45 authors to describe features of landscapes. The definitions are part of a collection called Homeground, Language for an American Landscape. We've asked several writers to read from their entries. Today, John Daniel of Oregon has his definition of Painted Hill. Painted Hill. Badlands produce colorful heaps and mounds called Painted Hills in central Oregon, striped horizontally in soft, interbled hues of red, green, and pale gold with punctuations of black manganese. The Oregon Painted Hills embody volcanic ash worked by plants, animals, and groundwater into ancient soils, now compacted into claystone layers. At present, a region of semi-arid steppe, this geological library of antiquated earth, in the phrase of geologist Ellen Morris Bishop, records more than 30 million years of climatic and biotic regimes ranging from subtropical swamp through temperate oak savanna. Except for brief skullcaps of bunchgrass, little vegetation can root in the dense weathered clay of the painted hills. Their life is in their colors, which can shift subtly before one's eyes as the clay takes on the moisture of rain and lets it go. 
The Painted Desert of Arizona contains similar formations, called Pintadas by early Spanish-Americans and by the Navajo, Land of the Sleeping Rainbow. John Daniel lives and writes in the hills just outside of Eugene, Oregon. His definition of painted hill is included in the book Home Ground, Language for an American Landscape, edited by Barry Lopez and Deborah Gwartney. We'll bring you more places from Home Ground in the weeks ahead. There's nothing quite like a crisp cup of freshly brewed iced tea to take the heat off a hot summer day. Yep, tea is time-tested. Legend has it that in 2737 B.C., Chinese Emperor Shen Nung discovered brewing tea quite by accident when sitting in his garden one morning, a single leaf fell into his bowl of hot water. Intrigued by the fragrant aroma, he brewed a cup, and the rest is ancient history. Today, tea is hot. It's used in everything from shampoos to face creams, and health-conscious consumers increasingly reach for cups of tea rich in antioxidants. Giles Hilton knows a lot about tea. He's master tea blender at Wittard of Chelsea, proprietors of tea and a London institution since 1866. Mr. Hilton was in Boston recently for the grand opening of Wittard's first across-the-pond tea blending store. There he talked about the little leaf that's steeped in so much tradition. I think that the rest of the world thinks that we English simply live on tea. If in doubt, we make a cup of tea. First thing in the morning, cup of tea. Moment of crisis, cup of tea. Relaxation before going to bed, cup of tea. It is definitely in the English culture. Every nation in creation has its favorite drink. France is famous for its wine, its beer in Germany. Russia goes for vodka. England loves its tea. So the early English traders in their sailing boats had found China. So the English took Hong Kong Island as their settlements because the Chinese wouldn't let them into mainland China. They traded for anything they could get, be it silk or jewels or tea. The English were trading back into England from the Far East with tea, so we hit the tea culture first. Tea is well known for containing antioxidants. These antioxidants are their natural ingredients in the tea leaf that is particularly good for the health. And the body can absorb these antioxidants and polyphenols. These antioxidants seem to have a, an ability, if you like, to, to almost purify the body a bit. Certainly, tea is a very good digestive. It will help the body not absorb too much fat from fatty foods and help build up that sort of immune system to minor complaints and diseases. When you think of a tea, there are endless choices. It's almost like self-analysis, isn't it? In other words, come on, what do I enjoy in life? Do I want red wine or white wine? We seem able to make that a choice. Do I want a strong tea, a light tea, a herbal tea because I'm thinking of my health? No, I'd like a pot of tea, please. Earl Grey or Lapsan Souchon? No, tea. 
It's an interesting question when people say, what is leading interest in different teas? What is increasing the sales in certain areas? The pop culture, so to speak, what is on television, what someone drinks, definitely has an effect because the word of that tea is suddenly in the public mind. Tea Earl Grey, hot. And so, funnily enough, Earl Grey is one of our best sellers, without doubt. There are two aspects, I suppose, to really enjoying tea. One is in the mind, one is in the palate, if you like. So I will prepare a cup of tea without great pretension. I don't have to have china, I don't have to have a beautiful teapot, I just make tea. The serving of tea to friends is an old and very enjoyable custom, and so it has its traditions. Sometimes with a, a pinch of leaves picked up with my fingers dropped into a cup. So the pleasure is in that flexibility of making tea. Start with fresh drawn cold water. Bring it to the boil, however you boil it, doesn't matter. But try to give a tea two, three, four minutes to brew to get the flavour out. Leaving the tea in longer, over-brews it, and after about five minutes, you almost develop a bit of harshness and woodiness because you've soaked the best essential oils from the tea leaves and then pour it, almost still bubbling, onto your tea bag or onto the leaves. And the reason is bubbling, it's full of oxygen, full of life, full of brightness, and it has a great effect on the tea. It brings that back to life and brings out the flavour efficiently. Um, and then don't waste the leaves, just top up the kettle again with boiling water or just very hot water, pour it into your brewed leaves and have a second cup ten minutes later. No problem at all. We should be being more economical, use less, and get two or three brews out of it. Tea is probably one of the most natural products in the world. If you actually analyse it, you have picked leaves, rolled them in a large flat roller, broken them up, applied warm air to dry them, and that's it. You've added no preservatives, no flavour additives, nothing whatsoever has been added to that at all. Mm, that is actually super. Mm. <laughs> And off you go. Giles Hilton is master tea blender at Wittard of Chelsea. The British company recently opened its first tea shop in America, in the city that's the site of the Boston Tea Party. Living on Earth's Dennis Foley produced our audio profile. To learn more about the art of tea making, visit our website, loe.org. We leave you this week, home, home on the range. Where seldom is heard a discouraging word of the bison and coyotes. They make their playground where the skies are not cloudy on the vast windswept grasses of the American and Canadian plains. Lang Elliott and Bernie Krause recorded these prairie home companions for the wildsanctuary.com audio series. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Ashley Hearn, Eileen Belinsky, Ian Gray, Ingrid Lobet, Andrea Smarden, and Jeff Young, with help from Bobby Bascom, Jeff Turton, and Kelly Cronin. Our interns are Lauren Cox and Amy Fish. Allison Lurish-Dean composed our themes, and today we bid happy trails to our technical director, Dennis Foley, as he heads off into the sunset and the Lone Star State. Dennis brought a rare combination of talents in journalism, engineering, and music to our show, and we are going to miss him. I'm Bruce Gellerman. You can find us at LOE.org. Thanks for listening. 
Y'all come back for a visit, you hear? Funding for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation, supporting coverage of emerging science, and Stonyfield Farm, organic yogurt and smoothies. Stonyfield pays its farmers not to use artificial growth hormones on their cows. Details at stonyfield.com. Support also comes from you, our listeners, the Ford Foundation, the Wellborn Ecology Fund, and Pax World Mutual Funds, socially and environmentally sustainable investing. Pax World, for tomorrow, on the web at paxworld.com. PRI. Public Radio International.